Have you ever wondered if our models for leadership and organization and how we do church are sustainable and healthy? On this week's episode, I talk with pastor and author Glenn Packiam about what he learned while partnering with Barna to write a book to explain and contextualize the most recent research. If you like Jesus, data, and are burdened by the challenges facing the church, you're going to love this conversation. Welcome to episode 40 of the Untangled Faith podcast. It was like nothing I had ever heard anyone say about pastoral ministry. So much of what I heard had been you know, visionary leadership and all of that, which is fine. There, there's, there's a place for that. But I felt like Eugene was naming the heart of this calling, which is, it's yeah, it's personal, it's local, it's slow. This is a moment where all everyone in any kind of leadership in Christ's name needs to consider very carefully, again, that, that searchlight of the Holy Spirit to say, how have I mishandled power? This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith, while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. The first time I heard Glenn Packiam, he was talking about his new book, The Resilient Pastor, on the Holy Post podcast. Immediately, I knew two things. I was going to buy the book, and I was going to see if I could interview him. Luckily for you, I succeeded on both counts. I'm careful about the voices I share with you, especially the voices of pastors. When I read only a few pages into the prologue about how impacted his ministry had been by Eugene Peterson's book, Under the Unpredictable Plant, I knew he would be a kindred spirit. I'm thrilled to share this conversation with you. You know, you had just you just released this book in cooperation with Barna, The Resilient Pastor, Leading Your Church in a Rapidly Changing World. You have seen the high highs and the low lows of ministry. So I'd love to hear some of your background, how that melds and how you came to do this project with Barna. Yeah, thank you, Amy. Um, yeah, I've been at, at the same church here in Colorado Springs for 22 years. Uh, it's New Life Church. And uh, six years into my time here, the founding senior pastor had a pretty public uh, moral failure, um, made headlines around the world because of his uh, prominence and the other positions he held with the National Association of Evangelicals. So obviously a very difficult time. I was in my late 20s at the time. And, um, you know, but I, I think very quickly in, in that season, it, it moved from sort of this, the spotlight on someone else's sin to the searchlight into our own hearts. And, and the Lord used the next few years that followed that uh, as a time of, of kind of wrestling with the question of what is a pastor? What does it mean to be a pastor? What does it mean to be a local church? Um, our new senior pastor, Brady Boyd, came in 2007. And then th three months into his time, a gunman came on our campus, opened fire, took the lives of two teenage girls. I mean, very, very tragic experiences. And then again, through that season, was more refining, more deepening kind of our faith um, and our roots in the Lord. And I would say, you know, over the years, so I, I've, we planted a congregation out of New Life Church or as part of New Life Church called New Life Downtown that I've led for uh, 10 years and, and, and definitely have seen this hunger in people to, um, to grab hold of what's real, 
sometimes I, I remember, you know, describing to people, I, I use this in a matter, metaphor sometimes, if we give people this backpack of faith and we say, here's the things that, you know, you need to sort of carry along, except that we've added all these extra bricks in the backpack, you know, and it's mm-hmm. not really just the essentials of faith. So early on for for us at New Life Downtown, we began to recite the creed together as a way of saying, look, let's figure out what the um, the church has confessed historically and what kind of forms the foundations here. So that's a bit of my uh, ministry, ministry sketch, kind of the highs and lows. And actually just recently, we marked that 10-year milestone at New Life Downtown and we were reading some of the testimonies from people saying, man, I was ready to walk away or I didn't know if, if I could trust um leadership or a church, or I, but I didn't want to give up on Jesus. Or some people who said, I kind of deconstructed and reconstructed mm. my faith um, through this church. So we're very grateful for the for the grace of God uh, as part of the story, maybe in the midst of, of, of scandal and, and pain and trauma and all of that. The fact that you are still in ministry and still at that church is such a testament to the miraculous work of the Lord Absolutely. and his calling on your life. Um, so one of the words in the title of your book, we're talking about pastors, right? Uh-huh. In 2019, Scott McKnight wrote an article titled, Willow Creek's Troubles Can Be Found in Its Word Cloud. McKnight had plugged the words from a job description Willow had posted for their new senior pastor into a word cloud generator and shared what he learned from that exercise. What resulted was a clear message that this job was about promoting and expanding Willow's reputation and ministries. McKnight went on to say, the historic foundation in scripture for the qualification of pastoring is ignored and absent in the Willow Creek job description. I've seen some pastor uh, job descriptions. (laughs) (laughs) Have you seen the word clouds where they put like a bunch of words together from a job description and they show like these really big ones that come up? And I sometimes wonder if this is sustainable, can you be a resilient pastor with the typical evangelical church structure of pastor? What are you seeing there? And what what did you see as you were putting this book together? You've lived it as well. Well, there's, I mean, I've learned so much from the stories and the journeys of others. And you asked me earlier about the story behind this book. So Barna approached me right before the pandemic and Mm -hmm. said, hey, would you partner with us to write a book for pastors about the changes, the changing world and the challenges. And I was like, oh man, that sounds amazing. You know, work with their research team. But then I get to, you know, kind of mine church history and the scriptures for some treasures, for some insight, for some wisdom. And of course, you know, neither of us knew at the time, you know, there was going to be this pandemic around the corner. So I either feel like the Lord, you know, maybe tricked me into saying yes, (laughs) or or he knew this was going to be a timely, timely project. And and, uh, a really good description for what's happening in the church. We're just going to let you live through it while you write it. It was amazing. And, and uh, you know, the fall of 2020 was when we designed some of these research questions. And I outlined eight challenges, in, and the book is kind of shaped around these eight challenges. There's some opening chapters and closing chapters. But four challenges are for the pastor as an individual. Four are for the church as a whole with regard to why do we gather? What are we? What's our mission in the world? How do we stay united? You know, things like that. But so we got to design some of that research. I got to work with their team on that. I got to do some focus groups then out of that with pastors in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. and listen to their stories and their kind of interactions around those challenges. And you mentioned the job description thing. That's That was like challenge number one yeah. facing pastors was our vocation. Like what actually is our vocation? What is our calling? 
And you're right, Amy. I mean, there is this sort of um, swirl of expectations that are truly impossible for any one individual to do or to be. And it's not as if over the years, these things have sort of been interchangeable. You know, maybe we look back several decades and it was like, oh, the pastor needed to be an expert in the Bible. And then it was like, no, they needed to be like an expert in therapy as a, and as a counselor. Then it's no, 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 they need to be a, an entrepreneur, you know, organizational genius. And then it's no, they, they got to be kind of this a political commentator or social activist. And, and I think it's not as if those expectations have replaced one another. They've just started stacking. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the weariness that I heard from pastors, maybe even the shakiness in their own vocation, comes from the unrealistic expectations that people have. Would you say that's a, a concern then as you look at the data? It is a concern. And, and maybe the short way to say this, it, you know, we had some of the questions we were able to actually track from questions Barna had asked five years prior. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions was, are you more confident in your calling today than when you first began? Or are you less confident? You know, mm -hmm. and, and basically what we discovered is more pastors are less confident mm -hmm. and fewer pastors are more confident. So there is this <laughs> kind of shaky. And, and I, I, I think it is, I think it is a concern. I think there's several ways to respond to this. Um, but I think at the heart of it for the pastor or the church leader, the core response is kind of this return to our first love to mm -hmm. say, look, you didn't get into ministry because you liked the job description. You yeah. got into ministry because you, you love Jesus. You know, this sounds like a Sunday school answer, Amy, but at the end of John's gospel, when Jesus renews Peter's calling, he doesn't he doesn't restore him with a job mm -hmm. description. He doesn't say, come on, Peter, we've got work to do. Or Peter, do you love the kingdom? Or Peter, do you love miracles? Or Peter, are you hungry for a move of God or for souls to get saved? He, he doesn't say, Peter, do you love the church? He says, Peter, do you love me? And I think if we're going to get back to the center of our calling, that's where it begins, not with the job description, but with Jesus himself. I had asked somebody previously that I'd interviewed just for some resources, like, what are some good things that look like, like real pastoral, like pastoral resources books? And he suggested Under the Unpredictable Plant by Eugene Peterson that you mention in your book. So you took a trip to Montana what did you learn from talking to Pastor Peterson? Oh, you, know, I, you had said, I, you, could, you could fill a book with this, right? So. But there was something that stood out to me that I'd love for you to talk about where he had said, and I wrote it down over here, pastoral work is local, personal, and slow. Yeah. Yeah. The, I, I When I read, and I read, I think it was Under the Unpredictable Plant was among the first ones, but Long Obedience in the Same Direction uh, and then working the angles. I mean, there's a few books specifically for pastors. And it was so compelling, Amy. It was like nothing I had ever heard anyone say about pastoral ministry, because so much of what I heard had been, you know, visionary leadership and all of that, which is fine. There, there's, there's a place for that. But I felt like Eugene was naming the heart of this calling, which is, it's yeah, it's personal, it's local, it's slow. Uh, you don't mass sort of, you don't pastor people en mass. You know, you do yeah. this uh, in a very deeply personal way. And visiting him was was quite the experience because even his own way of conversations is slow. You know, our, mm -hmm. our first evening, we're sitting out on this deck. A friend of mine, a colleague of mine uh, went with me and we spent uh, um, two and a half days or so at, at his place with he and Jan. And um, we're, I mean, these are the kinds of memories you treasure forever, but we would ask him questions and he would just sit and think. 
And we thought, oh no, did we, you know, did we say something yeah. wrong? Too quickly? But he would just wait and he was, he was careful and he was thoughtful in his responses. And one of the things that, that stood out to me was just that he said, look, there's no perfect context in which to do ministry. Now mm-hmm. we know, and we know today with all the, you know, podcasts and stories and all this stuff, there are certainly toxic environments mm-hmm. and we do want to exit those spaces, but but other, if you bracket that out, there's not these perfect sort of utopian conditions. And so all of us are trying to negotiate or, or navigate um, imperfect conditions, people mm-hmm. that don't really get us, pressures from an elder board or from a denomination or from, uh, and, and to be able to say, well, Lord, do I have my own little space here in which I can live out this vocation faithfully? Mm-hmm. And, and again, for pastors, you have to sort of tune out the voices. That's why I say it begins with coming back to Jesus, because you have to sort of tune out the voices maybe on social media or elsewhere that say, do this, preach on this, say this. And to say, hang on a minute, this, my agenda comes here from um, my deep life with God. And then an attentiveness to what God is up to in my own specific local congregation. So one of the hard things about this research is you are seeing these numbers that indicate that there is a problem with the credibility, you know, Americans in general, when they look at a pastor, they don't esteem a pastor and respect a pastor and just automatically think of this leader as credible as much as they used to, you know, I don't know when the peak of that would have been. What is the research telling us? How do we work on that credibility issue? And, you know, I have a lot of listeners that are like, I don't know. How do I know if I can trust a leader? How do I know if I can trust myself? I'm so glad you brought that one up because that is one. Sometimes people will say, well, come on, tell me what was surprising or what was the alarming, you know, and I don't I don't like to sort of I'm not trying to be a doomsday person. You know, overall, I think this book, The Resilient Pastor, is meant to be a hopeful book. It's meant to help us sort of. But you are right. This (laughs) this is one of those places where we kind of say, boy, that is a bit concerning, you know, and the question was, would you consider a pastor to be a trustworthy source of wisdom? And, you know, you know, generally all adults kind of, yes, definitely 23%, yes, somewhat 34%. So 47% are saying yes to some degree. Then you ask non-Christians specifically, or you slice out that data to non-Christians specifically, and it's 4% that say yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. 18% that say yes, somewhat. So that's 22% of non-Christians even marginally consider mm-hmm. a pastor a trustworthy source of wisdom. I mean, Amy, I think about, it used to be you could say, hey, come to church, listen to my pastor talk about this or that. And now your non-Christian colleague or, or coworker or neighbor is going to say, why do I care what your yeah. pastor thinks about, right? And and then and then that, that data, when it's sliced on for just Christians, 31% of Christians said yes, definitely. Hmm. 40% said yes, somewhat. So that's 71%. Roughly a third of the people in our own churches are listening to uh, a pastor preach and saying, yeah, maybe, you know. Yeah. And boy, when I, you know, again, the pastors that I spoke to, focus groups and all that, they said, yeah, that's about, sounds about right. What's the good news about that and the bad news? Well, the bad news is, you know, look, it, it's not a good thing when pastors are not viewed as trustworthy because in so much as we're supposed to be icons, and I say icons in a specific way, not an idol that you worship, but an icon through which the grace of God and the glory of God is revealed and reflected. 
uh, in as much as we're supposed to be that, it's not a good sign. It, it, mm-hmm. it means we've 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 done some something wrong. So the good news comes in the form of medicine. You know, it's it's, it's kind of like saying, well, I, I think if it, this is an opportunity to confess our complicity, how have we participated? How have we contributed to the loss of credibility? And I, I focus in the chapter specifically on the way we've mishandled power. I, I, mm-hmm. I think. I think Christian leaders, there is a great reckoning that's happening right now and has been for a number of years. Um, but I think this is a moment where all everyone in any kind of leadership in Christ's name needs to consider very carefully, again, that, that searchlight of the Holy Spirit to say, how have I mishandled power? How have I overstepped the bounds of my authority? How have I been brash or reckless or careless uh, in, in not recognizing the impact of my words or my actions and how what we think is a throwaway comment is a deeply wounding comment to, to someone mm-hmm. in our church. And as we begin to confess that, then we can begin to come to Jesus again and say, Lord, make me like you. Make me the kind of servant uh, that you are. And and again, that maybe that John 13 image of Jesus knowing that the Father had entrusted everything to him. So he had become this entrusted person. What does he do? He takes off his robe and begins to wash their feet. That's the picture that I want to be compelled by, that we need to be compelled by. The, what do we do when we have been entrusted with a certain kind of power? We need to use it to wash someone else's feet. Now, I'm not saying, Amy, do these things and then, hey, you know, you'll be trustworthy, you know. Because I don't yeah. think that's the goal. We do these things because it is the right way to be. It, it is what looks like Jesus. Whether yeah. the world rejects us for it or praises us for it probably depends on the cultural winds of that day. Obviously, there's different topics and different chapters. But the thing that is encouraging is that the answers, the suggestions for where to look are really about that relationship with yeah. Jesus and the spending time with God. Yeah, I don't know. Are we hearing a bunch of that at at conferences? <laughs> How do we sell that? <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's so true. And I, you know, I, I gained this insight by reading Andrew Root's excellent book, The Pastor in a Secular Age. It's a bit of an academic book, but he talks about how in different eras, pastors have gained their authority or their power from different sources. You know, mm. at first it was kind of the size of your institution, you know, early 1900s or actually prior to that, 1800s, it would have been, 1700s would have been your education. So pastors were, were some of the most literate people typically in a community and they could read and write in several languages. So education, then in the 1900s, Again, these are generalizations. It was the size of your institution. And then now maybe it's the you know size of your, your, your social media followers or whatever. And, and it's just such a mistake to think that that's actually the source of our authority because mm-hmm. there's no accountability built into that, those sources of authority. Just, you know, you can, there's a little bit of recklessness that comes. But if the source of our authority, like what they said of, of, of the early apostles, these were people who had been with Jesus, they said. You know, um, the book of Acts says, and I think, Lord, let it be true of us that people look at us and recognize, oh, these are women and men who have been with Jesus. And it shows not only in our authority, but in how we use our authority. Mm. Yeah. You had said that about, you know, I was thinking about the good news, bad news of the credibility gap. And I wonder if as we see a little bit less implicit giving of that credibility, we might move move more away from having a more sermon centric, centric one person centric 
leader in a faith community that might actually be more healthy for our churches going forward. It's not about coming to see Pastor Glenn. And so maybe that could be some of the good news of this. Not that we want people to be like, "Mm, I don't know about that guy. (laughs) But it's about one person. It really is hard when that one person isn't Jesus. It's hard to be a healthy place. You're totally right. And it has to be about the many gifts of the body. I believe in the preaching of the word. I believe in preaching being a key part of the gathered worship service. But even that doesn't have to mean one dominant preacher, you know. And and I am encouraged, Amy. I mean, I, one of the later chapters in the book, uh, in the section about hope for the future, is about collaboration. Mm. And I am encouraged by the stories of of, of churches and pastors developing more of a team based approach. I know, you know, there's got to be clear leadership structures, decision making, all of that. But in terms of how we present and how we minister. Uh, the, the team approach is really a wonderful answer um, to our own temptation to have the solo, as you say, the solo mm-hmm. singular gifted individual. Hey, everybody, come here. How good my pastor is. No, 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 no. That's not it. Uh, when you talk about collaboration and I'm you're thinking you talked about multiple different denominations and styles of churches. And God has actually worked in your own personal life to kind of put an amalgamation of styles and approaches. People aren't going to believe me when I say you preach at a non-denominational church, right? Uh-huh. But you're actually an ordained Anglican. <laughs> That's correct. Priest. <laughs> Tell us about that, how that came to be and how God is using that in your ministry. You know, I chuckle, Amy, and I, I I think so much of it is the sense of humor that God has, but also <laughs> also God's way of using parts of our story. So I'm from Malaysia. That's why I'm from originally. My mom grew up in Singapore, which is just, you know, south of Malaysia, you know, a tiny island up, you know, up to the south there. And she was raised, my mom was raised in an Anglican home. My dad was raised in a Hindu family. When when um, they were about to get, or when they were getting serious in their dating, my mom was like, you, you know, you, I'm not marrying a Hindu. So he converts. They're both sort of nominal Anglicans. And then they get kind of born again. And then they get invited to this Bible study midweek by the led by this Baptist pastor. Then they get introduced to sort of the charismatic renewal in the early 80s, you know, late 70s. And so uh, by the time my sister and I came along, we were kind of introduced into this hodgepodge, you know, mix of streams of the body of Christ. And so I, I appreciate that. And I, I came to recognize, you know, as in the year or two after the scandal at New Life, that it wouldn't do to just sort of sub out the name of of who the preacher or pastor was, but make the system keep everything else the same. And so 2009 was when I began preaching weekly. We started a Sunday evening service before we launched New Life Downtown. And I could feel it. I could feel, hey, there's something very intoxicating in a bad way about mm-hmm. being the person on the platform. And I had been the uh, you know worship leader, so I'd been on the platform in different modes and we began introducing some historic liturgical practices as a way of decentering the individual or decentering the, the worship team or the preacher. And we would do weekly communion and we'd work in this, you know, confession, confession of the creeds and, and prayers of, of confession. And over time, um, some people would attend their Anglican church Sunday morning and then come on Sunday night. And they began to say, well, you're kind of smuggling in some Anglican elements here at New Life. And I said, well, I mean, maybe I am. And I have this vague childhood memory of an Anglican church in Malaysia and all this stuff. 
And then the conversations began to get a bit more serious. And they said, could, you know, what would you think about, you know, pursuing ordination? And I said, well, I don't know that I'm called to be in the Anglican world per se. And then I, I you know, long story short, and I, and I tell some of it in the book, I, I, I was on this trip in the UK and I was at, invited to just attend a, a conference. And it was this vibrant, lively, you know, sort of modern worship, charismatic worship. And then the speaker was the Archbishop of Canterbury, you know, the symbolic head of the wow. global Anglican communion, basically. And he's talking about prayer movements. And I guess earlier in the day, he had, he had talked to, about how he prays in, in, in tongues, has a prayer language, you know, and, and reads the Bible. And I'm thinking, what? My brain's like, does not compute, you know? And as I talked with more people, and over the years, I've become really good friends with several folks in the UK, I've realized that when the number of faithful Christians is a minority in a culture, division is really a luxury. You know, mm -hmm. division is a luxury. And, and, and you ought to really recognize the gifts of each other's streams and traditions as a way of saying all of these are, are resources for faithfulness, if you will, means of grace of God helping us be faithful, be resilient. So, yeah, one one kind of collaboration is this uh, in the book, I call it symbiotic influence, you know, mm -hmm. where the, there's influence that's going both ways. And it's more than cosmetic. It's more than worship styles. It's about being enriched. I've been enriched by the contemplative practices mm -hmm. of prayer, not just the sort of more, you, you, you know, um, demonstrative ones, that, you know, in a non-denominational church. I can relate a bit to that. Um, we had been, you know, I grew up in an Alliance church and um, when we lived here for, lived here in Tennessee now, um, there wasn't an Alliance church. We've attended Evangelical Free Church in Minnesota and then a, a non-denominational um, restoration movement type Christian church. But in the last um, several months, we started attending a Presbyterian church. It felt very different to me, but in a way that because it was different, I was paying attention more. And I think we can get really comfortable with the thing we're at for a long time. And we stop thinking about it as much, you know, mixing that up a little bit, me sitting in a place I hadn't done the situation where we would take communion as a group together. We'd go up together and stand as a group or even do like a corporate confession together. Yeah. My Alliance roots were sort of connected way back with Presbyterian, and, but it had been years and years since we did anything like that. And it was really a very meaningful thing. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit about all the different streams, uh, how we learn from all of them. And that's a really beautiful thing. But you mentioned something about unity or like, disunity being a luxury. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about discipleship because I feel like it speaks to that. And there's the, there's a chapter or a section about discipleship. I underlined a bunch of that because I thought it really stood up to me. Um, it is supposed to be a primary goal of our churches. What is the research saying and what are we seeing as some of the primary challenges to that. Thank, thank you for pointing that chapter out, Amy, because you're right. I mean, again, I'll, you, you mentioned earlier that all of these things, you know, it's easy to sort of artificially divide them, but they do kind of bleed into one another. So you're talking about collaboration that leads to unity, but then unity is actually a function of discipleship and formation. I think from a pastor perspective, it's pretty, it's pretty difficult to measure discipleship. And so pastors tend towards 
a measurement by attendance and engagement, which is yeah. okay. But I think all of us know deep down that like, that's yeah, not It's hard really to measure the fruits exactly. of the spirit. Like, yeah. How much peace is there here? <laughs> exactly. How much love? Exactly. And so, so that's the, that's the temptation, I think, on the pastor's side. On the, on the Christian, you know, just sort of all of us as followers of Jesus, the temptation for us is to be individual and internal. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, when we ask people or when Barna has asked people in the past, you know, how do you know what's the goal of discipleship or how do you know when you're growing in Christ? They tend to point to things like, oh, I have more of a love for Jesus. It's sort of amb- ambiguous, but it's kind of internal. Or it's very individual when I am doing these things. And I, I in the chapter, I, I put that in contrast, a little bit in contrast with the early church. You know, the, and I'm talking, you know, say the 300s, pre-Constantine, mm-hmm. pre-it becoming, before it became official religion of the empire and all that, particularly in Carthage in North Africa, where they, they develop kind of this process of, of, of instruction and formation. And even though we're not going to replicate that, I mean, it was like a three-year process before you get baptized and all that. Okay, so maybe we're not going to follow yeah. all that. But I think some things we learn is it was so communi- community-oriented, meaning it was about a, an apprenticing community where together we were helping one another work this out. Like, okay, so what does this mean for merchants? And what does this mean for families? And what does this mean for, you know... And, and some of that is, of course, that's happening today, but our, maybe it's a way of saying our best discipleship efforts are when the body of Christ is an, becomes like an apprenticing community where mm-hmm. we are learning that the, the wiser, mature ones are helping the younger, uh, uh, maybe less mature ones think through all the implications of following Jesus in the different areas of their life, work, school, play, you know, all, all of that. So an apprenticing community. But there's also this 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 element of of um teaching the teachings of Jesus. You mentioned Sky, Jatani. One of the things I love mm-hmm. about Sky is his series of books, uh, What If Jesus Was Serious, you know? Yeah, yeah. And 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 that's what the early Christians that's how they lived. Like Jesus was serious about teaching us to live this way. And I I get that that sometimes some of us have come from legalism and where it's very works driven and performance driven. I get that, but if we're if we're not careful, we'll think that the the Christian uh, answer is actually a, a sort of well, just believe and trust the grace of God and God loves you and He thinks you're pretty great and that that's okay. Instead of realizing that grace is actually transformative, grace through the gift of Jesus and the Spirit not only makes us a new creation, but gives us this new power, this new energies, that word in the New Testament, this new energy to begin to work now and to begin to practice new habits and and learn new, um, basically to learn new instincts. You know, I, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a musician, Amy, and I think, you know, learning an instrument, it doesn't come naturally. But as you learn, and all of a sudden these movements with your fingers on the guitar or the piano, it starts to come more, more naturally. And that's what discipleship looks like, is with the teachings of Jesus and actual practices and an apprenticing community, by the power of the Spirit and the grace of God, it starts to become this sort of second nature kind of thing. And it is harder to measure, but it's not... It's not really uh, a mystery about how we can be facilitating it. It's, it's much more than check the box, attend this class kind of. In the book that Glenn and I have been chatting about, The Resilient Pastor, 
There's a section that speaks to spiritual formation and rethinking our goal. In speaking with church leaders, the vast majority say that the goal of discipleship is being transformed to become more like Jesus. In the book, Glenn goes on to say that it makes sense then that the preferred language to refer to the process of spiritual formation or discipleship is, quote, becoming more Christ-like, unquote. But Barna found this. They found that practicing Christians agreed with this terminology, but differed on the goal itself. Their top stated goal of discipleship for practicing Christians is, quote, learning to live a more consistent Christian life, unquote. Yeah. I thought that was fascinating, you know, that the top goal of discipleship for practicing Christians is learning to live a more consistent Christian life. Mm -hmm. And that there is actually a difference between becoming more like Jesus and what people would define as a Christian life. Yes, I know it sounds like semantics, but the Christian life thing is almost like we got to do Christian-y things, you know, yeah. and and it, it's almost like a cultural Christianity where I got to be a better Christian, quote unquote, read my Bible more, go to church more, do, and and is a little bit centered on if, if I just, you know, get, again, it's things that you can sort of check the box on, hmm. but becoming more Christ-like, that means I'm not just memorizing scriptures. I'm allowing the spirit to help me internalize this. And I'm trying to let my life become congruent and conform to the image of Jesus. So it's not, it's the difference between having perfect attendance record at Sunday school versus being able to embrace the cross in the difficult moments and decisions of our life, making business decisions uh, differently, making relationship decisions differently, uh, making decisions about our money and our sexuality. I mean, all of that stuff, the, the, the conform to the image of Christ is much more demanding than live a better Christian life. I really appreciated how you said how the Christian life, that phrase can really be co-opted by a cultural narrative of what that is white American centric. Early on in the book, you talk about um, some of the things that that are changing the current of, of how this whole society and era that we are ministering in. And you talk about three things. I think it was pluralism, Mm -hmm. paganism, and individualism. What do we need to know about that? What is happening with this? And yes, the world is changing why do we need yeah. to understand this? I mean, part of this is just to name some of the complexity. And I use this this metaphor here of, of I think it was 2004, the day after Christmas, there was an earthquake in the Indian Ocean that created a tsunami. So rising these huge swells of, of ocean waters and waves that then came crashing, um, surging onto beaches in, in Asia and, and, and aftermath. So I talk about the shift is like the earthquake, the surge of those three things you mentioned, and then the aftermath. So, so the sh- the shift is that shift between the relationship between Christianity and culture, where things that used to sit in a very happy or easy relationship is now a bit more tenuous. You know, some parts of the country, Christianity and culture still sit pretty easily together, but there's other moments where there's friction and it and it and, and it, it it's colliding. But that has resulted in kind of this surge, and the surge is those three things you mentioned. The new pluralism, and pluralism has, you know, it's been around for a long time, just the idea of many religions, many approaches. But the new pluralism that we're seeing today is not so much a coexistence, but it's more of a mix and match. Hmm. Okay, So again, I grew up in Malaysia. Christians were about 11% of the population. Muslims are, you know, 45%, something like that. Then you have Buddhists and Hindus. And, and you, everybody coexisted, but you weren't mixing and matching from each other's religions. Right. So the new pluralism, you primarily see this in the West, 
where we kind of take different systems of belief and we think, well, I'll take, take a little bit from Buddhism, a little bit from Christianity, a little bit from, uh, you know, and we kind of make our own thing. And the, the danger with that, the challenge back to a person who lives that way, you know, because they might say, well, it's, I'm just being humble. There's maybe truth everywhere. But actually, it's pretty arrogant because it makes you the, deci- the decision yeah. maker about which things are true and valuable. Yeah. Uh, and, and so the new pluralism is actually pretty arrogant. And then there's a new paganism, which that's an interesting one. You know, you think of paganism as like, uh, you know, idol worship. Well, OK, hold that image in your mind. Idols are earthbound or, or earthy kind of objects or images that you pray to in order to get things from. So it's very transactional. Uh, mm-hmm. Paganism is transactional. Uh, and it's something you can see. And it's it's not just transactional. It's also therapeutic. It's about, I just need to pray to this. And then I feel better because I've, I've done that. I've assuaged the gods or whatever. Well, in our world, our paganism, our, our newer, newer paganism is uh, uh, the market, the state, and technology. And I'm just naming three examples. There's probably more. Uh, all things that we think we can we can instrumentalize it, we can use it, we can leverage it to just sort of get what I want. So I can work the system this way and then, okay, works out good for my financial situation or makes me feel better about me. Um, so it's a new kind of paganism in the way that it works with, with earth, earthy gods that you can leverage. Um, and then the third one is this new sort of individualism. And this is the, the idea that the self is a constructed idea. So with ancient religions, particularly, of course, Judaism and Christianity, there's a creator. So sense of self is determined by the transcendent, by someone above you. But now the, the sense of who I am is self-determined. So I construct my own identity, my own self the, the, the trick with all of that is you become, again, at the very center of what's good and true and beautiful in the world. You define that. And that's different. I mean, even the ancient Greeks would have said, no, 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 look for what is good and beautiful and true, you know, and conform your life to it. Now it's your life determines what is good and beautiful and true and others have to conform to you. This is in the water for all of us. So people, are, we, we come to church and we, we, want, we judge a sermon or a service on what did it do for me? Was it, did prayer, was prayer something like paganism where I could kind of use it to get what I want, you know? Um, even the sort of pluralism, was there something that I liked from church, but if there's something I didn't like, it's okay, I'll take it from this other person that I read or listened to. So we, even as Christians, are, are, are prone to mixing and matching and doing what works and is pragmatic and placing ourselves at the center. So I want to be careful. I'm not trying to say, oh, the big bad world out there. I'm trying to say, hey, guys, this is the air that we're breathing. This is the water we're swimming in, you know. That's the bad news about the quote-unquote gospels of our age is mm-hmm. it promises something that it can't deliver. It promises yeah. that this is actually liberation. This is actually freedom. This is, you know, you get to be the the decider and the determiner, but actually it becomes bad news because it's such an oppressive weight. We weren't made to carry that weight. And so you think, well, what if I don't know who I am? And what if I can't decide uh, what, what to do? We were made to, to have the creator, the author and the perfecter of our faith, uh, the creator and the redeemer. We were made for him to speak and determine um, who we are. And there's actually, you know, the gospel works the reverse way. It, it initially feels like bad news, but ends up being good news. But yeah. false gospels pretend to be good news, but turn out to be really, really terrible news. How do we engage then? Like, are there certain 
things to keep in mind when it comes to communicating the gospel in this culture? Yeah, I think I think very often of that story in Luke 24 of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Um, you know, the first thing you notice about that story is they're walking away from Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, uh, it, there's a symbolism here that I wonder if Luke is up to because all through the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, Jerusalem is the place people are supposed to walk to. You're supposed to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Isaiah says the nations will be gathered on the Mount Zion. Um, but here we have this reverse image. You actually have disciples not faithfully making pilgrimage, but walking away sad. And I think that's a snapshot of our age. You have people who are walking away from religious spaces, specifically from church, from Christianity, uh, sad, disappointed. And they say, these disciples, they say, we had hoped. And what might people today say? Well, I had hoped, you know, I would find a a, a loving community. I had hoped I would find hope. Uh, you know, I had hoped, you know. And, and so that's the first thing we notice in that story. But then as the story goes on, what Jesus does is he joins them on their journey And I think that is so profound to me that this is Jesus after the resurrection. I mean, if he wanted to razzle dazzle and say, hey, everybody, come look at me, he could have done that. But here he goes incognito, essentially, and joins these disappointed, disillusioned disciples. And I think that is the posture of the church in this messy aftermath of of kind of this post-Christendom world, is to find people who are walking away sad and to join them on the journey, to kind of come alongside them and say, hey, well, what are you talking about? What's going on? Ask some questions. Find out the story they're telling themselves. And then secondly, to tell them a better story. Jesus begins to open up the scriptures, which, again, has a good beginning and a glorious ending. But the part that really stands out to them is he says the Messiah had to suffer all these things. That says to me that Maybe what's going to ring true or speak to the people in our world today is that God is a suffering God. So, yeah, the story has a good beginning and a glorious ending, but it has a suffering Savior in the middle of it. Mm. And that's what that's what people need to know post-pandemic, post-political tensions, racial injustice and all of that to say there is a suffering Savior in the, in the middle of this story. His name is Jesus. Yeah. And, then, and then what Jesus does is he, you know, he, t- he joins them on the journey, tells them you know, a better story. And then he kind of he does this sort of Eucharistic-like action where he takes over and starts blessing the bread and the wine, which in Jewish culture, the guest is not supposed to do that. The head of the household is supposed to do that. But he essentially takes over and then their eyes are opened. And I think of that, Amy, as the presence and the power of God. Um, we got to welcome the presence and the power of God. Every time we set a table, we are opening the way for God to do what only God can do. And and mm. and that's the you know there's limitations, the foolishness of preaching, the, all of this stuff. There's limitations to what uh, we can do, but what we're trusting is that God, in His presence and His power, will continue to open eyes today. You know, two things to go. One, you said razzle dazzle. <laughs> <laughs> I like it like that. Um, The other thing, I have never thought of that passage that way. And it is really beautiful and really moving. And if, you know, I would hope that, you know, leaders can really look at what Jesus is doing there because there is a real tendency and temptation Mm -hmm. when you see somebody walking away from Jerusalem and Mm -hmm. saying, I had hoped, I had wished to feel threatened by that yeah, and to take it personally mm-hmm. and to feel like that 
is some sort of a threat to the ministry and that they're going to need to write a gospel coalition article (laughs) about why you maybe shouldn't walk away from Jerusalem or maybe you shouldn't, you know, use the word deconstruction because it's, Mm -hmm. I think the hope is bring them back. But sometimes it can have the opposite effect where it looks unfortunately like you're trying to protect yourself and no, not so much protect the gospel or, or Jesus as if he needed protecting. And if anybody had a right to feel bad about these people saying, I had hoped I had wished it would have been Jesus. You're exactly right. And he walked with them. You're exactly right. That's it. If Jesus himself was not defensive or, hey, 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 guys, guys, you know, like, I mean, and he is, you know, to be fair in the story, he's he is what we might say is a little bit rude in that moment because he's like, are you so foolish, you know? And I don't know how Jesus gets away with saying those things. And I don't know the cultural differences and norms of, of conversations and all of that. But the fact remains, he decided to join them on the journey and ask them questions and tell them stories and have a meal with them. And that's the posture that we've got to take as a church. I just, I feel like you're preaching. I I feel the pastor in you coming up in the best way, Glenn. I have loved talking to you. I would love for you to tell the listeners how they can support you, what you are up to. Well, I've loved the conversation as well, Amy. You're a great host, great questions. Thank you for engaging this book. Uh, Probably the best thing to do is go to theresilientpastor.com. And there's a host of initiatives that I've partnered with Barna to launch. Uh, There's the book. We've got the Resilient Pastor podcast for pastors and church leaders. We're doing some city roundtables in a number of cities this year that are totally free events thanks to our sponsors. And then we're launching a cohort. So if you are a church leader, if you know that your pastor or uh, church leader could, could use some company, maybe some travelers, companions along this way. Uh, We're launching this cohort this fall. So you can find out all about those initiatives at uh, theresilientpastor.com. These are some of the words that Glenn used to wrap up his book, The Resilient Pastor. When I was a younger pastor, I was overly concerned with the impact of our ministry. I wanted to be a history maker, a world changer, and all the other phrases that had inspired me in my college years. I stepped into the church world ready to make my mark. But after more than 20 years in pastoral ministry, I am keenly aware of the reality that we are not in charge of our legacy and impact, nor should we be. Jeremiah the prophet was called to preach, though no one would heed his words. Jonah was sent with a message, and an entire city repented. The results are not for us to obsess over. Neither Jeremiah nor Jonah wanted the tasks they were given. And yet the difference between the two prophets is not their results, but their response. Jeremiah yields and becomes an obedient, weeping prophet. Jonah resists and becomes the prodigal, whining prophet. Faithfulness, the very goal of resilience for the Christian, is not in the outcome, but in the obedience. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Untangled Faith Podcast. This podcast is made possible by the support of the Untangled Faith membership community. You can find information at patreon.com slash untangledfaith. The membership community has access to different perks like bonus audio, a private Discord channel, and other things. We would love to have you join. Another easy way to support the show is to leave a review on your favorite podcast app. In the meantime, if you want to continue this conversation, 
You can find me on Instagram and Facebook as Untangled Faith or on Twitter as Faith Untangled. Last week, so many of you resonated with the conversation about FPU and finances. Kelly Rains commented on Instagram and said this, Love this episode. I have been through FPU and it didn't set well with me, especially for those in poverty. I went through faith and finances and it was much more kind. Thanks, Kelly. So now because of Kelly, I'm about to track down faith and finances. I love this community. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I will see you here next week.